my skylight tote. Here. <laughs> I made sure. Um, I don't know if Ken and I know who's going to play the host exactly between us, but uh, oh, but uh, is that my foot thing? Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I just kicked it. But anyway, I just want to say I'm thrilled to be here to celebrate Ken's amazing book. So thank you for asking me to be oh, here. Of course, of course. I'm hoping that this will work. As you see, my voice is um, only half here. <laughs> um, so um, I'd, I'd like to start by thanking Maggie for coming out on the eve of her birthday. Uh, I'll have to say happy birthday to her. Um, and it's a real pleasure. Uh, what we talked about doing was each of us are going to read um, briefly um, from our books um, and then have a discussion uh, back and forth. Um, we already started our discussion. Um, and I'm going to try this with a Ricola and hot water. <laughs> I like to think of myself as an obsessive, but it's only made that much better when the hysteric behind the obsessive emerges. Um, <laughs> to think about this at all until today? Yes. Is this really hard for you? Yes. Did you see Brandon when he came into the courtroom this morning? Yes. You saw this person that you saw shoot Larry King? Yes. Yes? Where is he sitting? I know. I'm not going to ask you to look at him, but can you tell me where is he sitting? Behind me. Deep breath, where? Behind me. Mariah Thompson had come to testify in the people of the state of California versus Brandon David McInerney. Three years earlier, on February 12, 2008, 14-year-old Brandon shot 15-year-old Larry Phobes King twice in the back of the head during their first period English class at E.O. Green Junior High in Oxnard, California. On this, the second day of the trial, July 6, 2011, Brandon stood accused of first-degree murder, lying in wait, and a hate crime. The hate was said to be gender hate. Larry King had begun referring to himself as a girl a few days before he was killed, and it was alleged by the Ventura County District Attorney that Brandon killed Larry because of his perceived gender or sexual orientation. The bailiff, Los Angeles District Deputy Sheriff Mike Anton, met Mariah at the main door to courtroom F-51 of the Superior Court of the State of California. Chatsworth, California. Room F-51 was a windowless, though brightly lit, sage green box. It had been built for wear. Plastic wood veneers, poorly padded folding seats, concrete floors. Even the sparse carpeting was made to endure, not bounce. Mariah had been a classmate of Larry King and Brandon McInerney and an eyewitness to the shooting. Sheriff Anton offered his hand to guide her to the witness stand. 
She did not look up as she walked past the visitor's gallery toward the well of the court. Sheriff Anton opened a small gate in the waist-high wall that divided the gallery from the well and gently directed Mariah between the tables used by the prosecution and the defense teams. Wearing a white cotton sundress and black ballet flats, she recoiled even as she advanced, walking with her head bent forward, her shoulders rounded into her round frame. She made no eye contact. She stopped a few feet before the judge's bench. She tugged at the edge of her salmon-colored cardigan sweater. The judge, the Honorable Charles W. Campbell, sat at his imposing bench above Mariah. The clerk of the court, the record keeper, and her assistant sat at a long desk perpendicular to the judge's bench on the right. The court reporter sat just below the judge, not far from where Mariah stood. The jury was seated on a three-row riser to Mariah's left. Sheriff Anton instructed Mariah to raise her right hand and face the clerk. Mariah did not turn, nor did she look toward the clerk. She did, though, raise her hand barely above her hip. Holding a Bible, Madam Clerk asked, Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you are about to give in the case now pending before this court is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Mariah nodded and was sworn in. With Sheriff Anton's help, she made her way up a single step to the witness stand, a small perch sandwiched between the judge's bench and the jury box. She sat hunched on the edge of the brown upholstered chair, the sort one might see in an office cubicle. Sheriff Anton, the unerring butler of the courtroom, ran his hand over the rail as if to demonstrate that Mariah was protected. She stated her first name and spelled it. She looked then, for the first time, out at the room. As Mariah looked out upon the room, I doubt that she took in the 57 people who had gathered before her, for as quickly as she looked up, she lowered her head again and began to weep. Fear illuminated Mariah's pale skin and blue eyes. Deputy D.A. Fox, leading the prosecution, instructed Mariah to breathe. Ms. Fox offered to delay the questioning. She asked if Mariah might like to have one of her parents join her on the stand. Judge Campbell reiterated these offers. Mariah caught her breath and said that she could go on. Led by Ms. Fox's questions, Larry described, I'm sorry, Maria, Mariah described Larry King as a skinnyish brown boy who was out there but seemed happy. She smiled warmly when she said this. It was as if the smile had escaped. Then she explained that a month before Larry was killed, he had begun dressing up. He wore high heels, makeup, and earrings to school. By Mariah's account, Larry was often teased and called names like gay and fag. Yes, Larry would react to the teasing, sometimes taunting in return, but Mariah thought such rejoinders were always provoked. Ms. Fox shifted her questions and her focus to the accused murderer. 
Mariah told us that she shared two classes, PE and English, with the defendant, Brandon McInerney. Mariah recounted how she had observed Brandon, along with her other classmates, teasing Larry. Careful to include Brandon in a group, Mariah did not name Brandon as a lone bully. She did not even have a clear recollection of seeing Brandon and Larry interact one-to-one. Mariah glanced at Brandon just as quickly she returned her gaze to her hands, worrying a tissue in her lap. She smiled. Again, the smile quivered and was quickly checked. Miss Fox asked if kids said things to Larry like, You're so gay. Why do you dress like a girl? Mariah quietly answered yes. She dared another look at Brandon. Moving quickly as we would learn was her style, Ms. Fox turned to the day of the murder, February 12, 2008, and the classroom at E.O. Green Junior High where the murder took place. Using an aerial diagram of the school, Ms. Fox asked Mariah to identify the classroom and to confirm where she had been sitting on the morning in question. Mariah hesitated, and Miss Fox repeated the question. As Mariah pointed to the diagram, she began to cry. Sheriff Anton offered tissues and water. Mariah took the tissues, leaving the water bottle unopened on the edge of the witness stand. Calmed, she went ahead to describe how 28 students had started off the day together in their homeroom, where they stayed for about 15 minutes before walking together to the computer lab to work on research papers. Mariah's paper was about Anne Frank. Twenty minutes after the class had settled into the computer lab, Mariah turned away from her computer to ask a friend a question. What did you see? What happened? Miss Fox asked. Mariah looked sidelong at Brandon, then back at Miss Fox, who repeated the question. Mariah lowered her head. Her shoulder-length red-blonde hair fell forward. She attempted to push it back, but strands of hair caught in the corners of her mouth. Mariah was by then 17 years old. It was not difficult, though, to see her at 14, her age, when she watched 14-year-old Brandon become a murderer and 15-year-old Larry leave life. Flushed with emotion, caught in the magnifying lens of the witness stand, Mariah began to tremble. Terror emerged from her eyes and unfurled across her body. She was not alone. When Mariah entered the room, she brought murder with her, It was with us all. One juror, a trim elderly man, leaned forward and put his head in his hands. Two jurors wept. To my right, Brandon's mother, Candon McInerney, sobbed. She held a tissue to her nose, but it had given way and her hands were wet. She struggled to breathe. As her gasp accelerated, I began to think through the medical response to a panic attack. I thought we might need a small brown paper bag. Someone in the visitor's gallery said no, not loudly enough to fill the room, but loudly enough to breach the court's instructed silence. The court reporter bowed her head. Larry's grandmother put her hand on her forehead and then reached out to touch the shoulder of Larry's younger brother, Rocky. 
Miss Fox offered Mariah a break. She asked if Mariah might want to move her chair so that her back would be turned to Brandon. Mariah did not respond. Judge Campbell ordered a 20-minute recess. Time would be reset. His order was kind but firm. He explained that when the proceedings reconvened, one of Mariah's parents would join her on the stand. He then excused her, and Sheriff Anton helped her exit the witness stand and walk to her parents, who met her at the gate that separated the well from the gallery. Looking frightened, Mariah's father put her arm around her and led her from the room. Brandon had remained motionless throughout Mariah's testimony, head down, shoulders loose. He stared at the edge of the table and at a water bottle that he occasionally tipped on its side. After the recess was called, he rose from his chair with his defense team. He turned to face the visitor's gallery as the jurors filed out. He stood with his hands folded as if he were in a receiving line. The pose looked coached. So, too, had Brandon's long brown hair been coached and combed in the manner of an Eton schoolboy. His social performance was as new and stiff as his shoes. The following week, Samantha Kreiner, Brandon's girlfriend, would testify that she had never seen him with long hair. Gosh, he's never looked like that, she exclaimed. I always wanted to see him with long hair, but he never would, you know. Buzzed. It was always buzzed. Brandon was a handsome boy. Most everyone said so. He was pale, prison porcelain, with gray eyes shadowed by a strong brow. His small chin, his thin mouth, it could have been drawn with two quick pencil strokes, were just the right amount of flaw. At six foot three, he towered over his lawyers. His muscles pushed against the seams of his extra-large shirt that sought to cover the evidence. Two deputies escorted Brandon from the courtroom to his holding cell. I walked to the bathroom. I went to the sink and began splashing my water, my face with cold water. I put my glasses back on and looked in the mirror, taking in my short gray hair and the bags under my eyes. A thin man, I am often taken to be younger than I am. But as I looked at my reflection, I did not see much that spoke of youth. I thought about my father's father, who was 57 years old when I was born. In my eyes, he had always been old. I was then 57 as I stood in front of the mirror. I was 10 when my grandfather died. His death was my first. I had had to be ushered from the funeral in tears. As I stood at the sink, Zeke Barlow, the reporter from the Ventura County Star, came in, used the urinal, washed his hands, and began to pace. Zeke, whom I had met the day before, looked at me and asked, Dude, you all right? Barely, I said. An elderly gentleman unknown to me walked to the urinal. And as if he were speaking to himself or rhetorically to the room, the stranger asked, How could he? No, it's okay. I don't know if I need... Sorry, I like my... I'm perched here. Um, 
Uh, Ken's book is so riveting. I mean, I'll say this a bunch of times tonight, but if you if you have if you don't have it, um, you need to get it and read it right now. I just w- I kind of want to hear you read the whole thing in a marathon <laughs> out loud, but it's long. Um, so I think that when Ken was uh, thinking about talking to me tonight, I'm not totally sure, but that he might have. Um, uh, been familiar with the Argonauts, which has more to do with gender and sexuality, but um, but it turns out I have this courtroom book that I wrote in 2007, which is um, being re-released, and uh, and uh, so I thought I would read just a little bit from it um, because we, I was just saying to Kim before we started, there was just um, it was really interesting to. I mean, my book's more personal uh, throughout. Uh, because it's the murder of my family, than it is uh, journalistic, or um, you know, but I feel like there were, uh, you know, there were just so many overlaps between the things that I feel like that his book goes into and that I um, thought about during my experience of this trial. So um, I'll just read a little bit, but just to kind of set this up, my my mother's sister Jane was murdered in 1969 um, when she was a student at University of Michigan and. Um, the murder was un- unsolved for my whole life. I was born shortly after her death, and then, um, but was thought to be the work of a serial killer. Um, and then I wrote a book about it called Jane and Murder because it was just a big unsolved traumatic uh, thing hanging in my family and kind of pulsating. So I wrote this book, Jane and Murder, but then right as the book, and my, my worst fear while writing it, which was like my cinematic fear, was that. Um, Dredging, dredging up this family story was going to somehow like awaken her real murderer, you know. And then right when the book was going to print, um, we got a call from the Michigan State Police saying that there was a new uh, DNA match in her case 36 years later and that they, they actually were on the verge of, of uh, arresting a new suspect for the um, for my aunt's murder. So this book is the story of um, my mother and I going to the trial of the suspect, Gary Leiterman. Um, so, um, but Ken and I've been, he would, we're talking real briefly in email about this phenomenon called Murder Mind, and I thought I'd read a little bit from the, this first chapter called Murder Mind, so um, we're just kind of jumping in the middle here. Um, uh, years later, while in the thick of researching and writing my book, Jane, the problem was not too little information. It was too much. Not about Jane. Her murder remained maddeningly opaque. But about the other girls, this is the other seven girls who were thought to be part of that series, uh, whose horrific rapes and murders were described in excruciating detail in newspapers from the period, several true crime books, and on many serial, ki- serial killer chic websites. There were charts, such as the one that appeared in the Detroit Free Press on July 28, 1969, titled A Pattern of Death and Anatomy of Seven Brutal Murders, which organized the details under the categories Last Seen, Where Found, How Killed, Other Injuries. The entries were barely readable. During this research, I began to suffer from an affliction I came to call murder mind. I could work all day on my project with a certain distance, blithely looking up bullet or skull in my rhyming dictionary. But in bed at night, I found a smattering of sickening images of violent acts ready and waiting for me. Reprisals of the violence done unto Jane, unto the other Michigan murder girls, unto my loved ones, unto myself, and sometimes, most horribly, done by me. These images coursed through my mind at random intervals, but always with the slapping, prehensile force of the return of the repressed. I persevered, mostly because I had been given an endpoint, the publication of Jane a murder on my 32nd birthday. As soon as I held the book in my hand, I would be released. 
I would move on to new projects that had nothing to do with sexual murder. I would never look back. The reopening of Jane's case did away with these hopes entirely. So I moved to this terrible town called Middletown um, in Connecticut, and uh, uh, as winter descended in Middletown, the sunroom became the snow room, and Murder Mine came back. In the morning, I would pretend to know how to teach Shakespeare to fresh-faced undergraduates, and then return home to talk on the phone to homicide cops and sift through the stack of books I had checked out from the university's science library to try to keep up with developments in Jane's case. DNA for dummies, clinical psychology textbooks with titles like you're going to have to help me here. Sexual murder, catathymic and compulsive homicides. <laughs> catathymic. I flipped, <laughs> I flipped through the case studies and sexual murder only once, but I still felt as though they might have given me a fatal disease. At night, I often found myself up late, unable to sleep, pacing around the Ponderosa room in my pale blue bathrobe, a tinkling glass of whiskey and ice in my hand, watching the snow mount menacingly around the windows. I began to feel like a ghost, like a stranger to myself. It wasn't quite as bad as The Shining, but sometimes it felt close. At least Jack Nicholson had a family to witness and rue his descent. At more jocular moments, I felt like John Berryman, a throwback, a poet trapped in a gothic college town, some scraggly miscreant academic who went to dreary parties, swapped wives, and occasionally defecated blind drunk on a colleague's lawn. Except that in Middletown, there were no such parties. In short, the ideal of catharsis that had served as a naive but real spur throughout my writing of Jane began to crack at the seams and reveal itself as the ruse I had always suspected it to be. My identification with my aunt, which had been the main thread of Jane and which was arguably a result of mistaken identity on the part of my grandfather, who has called me Jane instead of Maggie for as long as I can remember, began to feel like either a hoax or a horror. I had started writing Jane with the presumption that my family's repression of her awful death was an example of faulty grieving, which my book could delicately expose as an unhealthy vestige of a Midwestern Scandinavian heritage, a grim Igmar Bergman scenario getting played out in the small lakeside town of Muskegon, Michigan, and I could offer a more successful model of mourning in its place. The hubris of this idea is now abundantly clear to me. When I think now about faulty or successful grieving, I feel only bewilderment. And beyond the bewilderment, the edge of a shapeless, potent rage, a rollicking protest, some loose, hot, and wild event starting to take place under my skin. Photo number one. This book has kind of a series of photos from the trial that punctuate it. Photo number one. A ring of male detectives standing around the shrouded lump of Jane's dead body, taken from behind the chain-link fence looking into Denton Cemetery. The picture cuts off around the men's waists, so all you can see of them is a row of trench coat bottoms and matching black shoes. Jane's body lies at their feet, her head and upper body shrouded by her raincoat. One of her arms strays out from under it, ghostly white, flung above her head, as if she were not dead, just completely exhausted. So I'll just read that. This is going to be a real, it's a real uh, heavy subject in <laughs> these books, but um, that's partly what I think. Yeah, what you just read about the way that the... I mean, it's so moving to begin your book that way because that feeling of, you know, murder entered the room with her. It's Mariah, is that... Right. Yeah, it's so... Um, it's so... 
uh, recognizable and palpable to me. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the first day of the trial was um, testimony offered by um, men in authority. They, they all mm-hmm. wore suits and ties, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they brought you know binders, three ring binders with them, and detailed um, facts of the murder. Yeah. Um, in a way that um, she was the first person to actually bring the murder into the room. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I wondered if we might just start with your question about faulty okay. grieving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, um, while in fact um, I, 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 I don't at all disagree with what you just had to say about mm-hmm. grieving, I think we operate with ideas about grief and mm-hmm. grieving that are um, too tidy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tend to think of grief and grieving as something that happens um, in a discrete way um, and in a discrete period of time, mm-hmm. and then we move on. Um, I, I, it is neither my personal or my professional experience mm-hmm. um, that that is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is interesting to me how that idea keeps threading through your book mm-hmm. at various times. Mm-hmm. And in my book, though, um, part of, I think, both my intention, but also how it captured me mm-hmm. in attending the trial, were the ways in which um, Larry, who had begun to rename himself Letitia, um, the way in which Letitia's life within the court mm-hmm. um, was a life that in many ways um, was not um, seen as a life that mattered uh, or a life that could be recognized mm-hmm. and a life that mattered mm-hmm. and therefore a life that could not be grieved. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that so it's um, the, the theme of grief runs through both mm-hmm. of these books mm-hmm. um, in a variety of different ways. And that, yeah. that's, you know, of course, would make sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that I think that in the beginning of the red parts, and I have that passage about faulty grieving and saying that I don't believe in catharsis, but I mean, I think that if you, you know, I think that the book ends up somewhere different, you know, than, than where it starts. It kind of starts in this rage of, like, that there is no healing and there is no, you know, it's just kind of this boiling thing. And I think that what's really interesting about, um, maybe this actually is a question I, man, I have so many questions, I don't know where to start, but, like, or comments or whatever, but I think that one thing about the structure of your book, Ken, is that, like, I felt like it began, um, you know, it, too, takes this very motley and thorough journey and through these different places, but it, it um, as a writer, maybe I'll just start here like as a kind of writerly question, which was that I felt like that the, um, because what it has to do with grieving was that, you know, you're rendering, I mean, there are a lot of very, I mean, I'll just say, even though it's not really proper, but, you know, like I felt, you know, very, very kind of despicable people or actions reverberating throughout, um, you know, a murder over a girl in terms of the, you know, what made Letitia's life not visible and what made it end and all of the forces and, you know, familial and institutional that contributed to that. So it's a very, um, you know, enraging uh, reading to see her um, life denied. And I think at a certain point in the book, Ken kind of says, name it, name it, <laughs> name the hate that, that will you know, be like kind of, I can't remember what you say, like, allow us to... Just to name name the, the crime that ended yeah, her life. Yeah. Uh, and thereby recognize her life. Yeah, and so um, I think, though, but the journey that, the, that your book takes... Um, so I thought as a writer, because I thought, 
like occasionally when you were rendering interviews with people, I thought like, wow, he's really like letting himself just be really hard on these people, you know? And I was really kind of amazed because it's really difficult when you're writing about, when you're doing kind of interviews where you're not precisely a journalist or you're not precisely a memoirist. You don't really know what you're doing. You're just like, hey, can I interview you? And then you end up writing about like, you know, he was wearing a, you know, you know, a, you know dark sage, you know, corduroy shirt. And like, they're like, that wasn't what I signed up for. But then by the end, um, you know, you at least allow, you know, the figure at least of Brandon's mother, which has a very long visit with her at the end. I'm not going to call it like redemption, but there's a real, there's a, um, it's kind of one of the first very, very real interactions where there feels like some change or something has happened um, that has um, brought some kind of reckoning to anybody, yourself included. And I wondered whether or not, I mean, I guess as a writer, bless you, like the, um, you know, how you approach both writing about those other people and then, and then, and then the question of, um, of, of, of that journey about reckoning with... Um, I, I guess I have a couple of different thoughts. Um, well, I, I, it's interesting for you uh, to hear you say that I'm hard on them because <laughs> I actually didn't feel that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I, uh, it was a question that Tony Kushner asked me in New York. Yeah. When he, he said to, he, he went at it from a different direction, saying he thought that I was too nice to them, mm-hmm. um, and that, that why wasn't I yelling at them more? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, <laughs> I, uh, and he spoke of them yeah. as horrible people. Yeah. Um, and I, I said that I actually yeah. didn't think of them as horrible yeah. people. Yeah. Um, I actually thought of them as people that I was sitting at a table with or mm-hmm. in their office, and mm-hmm. I was trying to understand their point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes, um, it was a point of view that was being um, offered within a system mm-hmm. that was failing, just failing colossally. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, my anger, mm-hmm. um, at least during the trial, I, I saved it for the this, this systemic mm-hmm. uh, problems that were at hand. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that the teachers' responses in the school to Larry Letitia were, yeah. were really lacking, whereas the children in the school, mm-hmm. were they were the most remarkable witnesses and the most remarkable people to speak to, I, I found. Mm-hmm. But the school system... Uh, was just crumbling around these teachers. They were bringing papers and pencils to school mm-hmm. because there were none. Um, it was a school designed for 600 kids, and at the time of the murder, there were a thousand students at that school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, at one point at the end of the book, I, I quote the Prince of Verona, who at the end of Romeo and Juliet stands in the mm-hmm. middle of the courtyard and says, "All are punished." Mm-hmm. And in many ways, that's uh, uh, mm-hmm. that, that was the mm-hmm. feeling that I had. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you know, what happened with Brandon's mother at the end was a gift. Mm-hmm. It was just mm-hmm. one of those mm-hmm. like lucky, very, very lucky uh, moments as a writer. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I. I happened to be at an event with Joan Didion. The, the, the undertaking this project was an incredible act of hubris in so many ways. But I was at this event with Joan Didion. I told her I was going to do this. I asked her for advice, and she said to me, make yourself as small as possible. Mm. Uh, in many ways, that is what I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And over yeah. time... People um, 
came up that this trial also had lasted for two months. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we were all there together every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we got to know one another. We had to know one another's habits. Kendra and I knew that we could never find our cars in the parking lot at the end of the day. Um, You know, Dawn King knew that she could make me laugh. Well, what's so amazing about nonfiction, though, is that there are certain. I mean, even though, like, you do in some ways make yourself as small as possible, they're also. I don't want to like give too much away, but there also kind of begins to be this um, strange thread through that, like, you know, Brandon, who won't, who's the murderer, who won't. Um, I don't know what to say. Like, he 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 won't crack. He won't. He won't. Um, he won't touch what he's done. He's just, as you just saw him playing with the water bottle half on the side, you know, he's just in some sense vacated. Um, uh, he's gone. And like he says, I, you know, I put Larry somewhere. I put him away. You know, the person he murdered, like, as if it solved the problem and it's gone. But there becomes to be this thread that, like, if Brandon would only talk to Ken, <laughs> like, maybe he would be able, to, like, if he would just, if he would put the repository of his story of what he did to somebody, maybe it would actually be his, um, salvation is not quite the right word, but you know, something might give in his psychology. I thought that was really interesting because then by the very end you kind of actually become a... But what was so great about nonfiction, I was going to say, is that um, you know, we can't make things happen in other people. Um, uh, all we can do is bear testimony to what happened. And you know, of course you don't speak with Brandon, and but you do have this scene with his mother. And I just, I don't know, I thought that was, I felt you because I felt this before in nonfiction writing, especially in a trial where you're waiting for a verdict and you know you're writing about the trial. You know, you kind of also know like that your charge is going to be to making the story is whatever the story is, and your job as a writer is to make is to render it however it was. So I will know if you want to say anything about, you know, the process of the verdict or this question of Brandon speaking to you or not, or how these kind of narrative threads felt when you knew that you were not in control of them. You know. Well, I, I actually think that that goes to the question of trauma and and what is testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think testimony is a desperate attempt to try to collect the shards of a glass that has dropped, yeah. and it is just yeah. in shards, yeah. um, and you cannot ever bring it back together again. And so in many ways, witnessing and testimony is that effort to try to bring something back. For me, one of the most mm-hmm. moving moments in the entire trial was a boy who was sitting two seats away away from Letitia at the time of the murder. Um, and um, he was uh, he was a, a very serious kid, or uh, I don't know if he was a serious kid or his mother or his grandmother had made him look serious. He was in a starched <laughs> shirt and these very stiff pants, and his hair was combed just so. Um, but he was a very sober boy, and he spoke about... Um, watching Brandon stand up and shoot Larry. Um, He couldn't remember exactly seeing the shooting itself, Mm -hmm. Um, but he then did, although he he recognized that he had seen it, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't able to Mm -hmm. recall that in his mind. And the next thing he recalled was watching Brandon walk out a door and walk out onto a crowded street with cars going by. 
mm-hmm. and he said from the witness stand with his head, I don't know if I could actually do it, he, he went like this and then he looked down and he said, but it wasn't until the next day that my brother told me, there are no houses, there are no cars outside that door. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way in which trauma had just taken his mind elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But that was his testimony, yeah. that was his effort to yeah. try to make sense of that which he he could not make sense of. I think that's why in some ways, I mean, I remember when I was titling the red parts, I almost titled it the Book of Shells because Mm. that's the name of the log of a... The, where the per, like where you buy bullets, you know, you write your name in the book of shells. But it was also that like after the murder, and it, ironically or whatever, coincidentally, both of the murders that Ken and I are writing about have to do with being shot in the head. And so there's a kind of recovery of bullet fragments. And then the book of shells was also kind of like, you know, like at this trial that I was at, you know, there's the literal passing around to the jury of the re- recollected, you know, the, the recollected fragments. And in this case, because they were 36 years old, it was really quite strange to be like, here is the tampon. This person had in her body, you know, saved 36 years. Here are the bullet shards taken from her skull 36 years later. You know, but I, but again, there's, so on the one hand, yes, you have this tremendous recollection around trauma that like the, archive. yeah, that the, that the trial does, but then on the other hand, as your book makes clear, and as you've just made clear, um, there's such a huge disconnect between this kind of clinical recitation of what happened and then wh- where the actual trauma lives. And I don't know, maybe it kind of brings me to this other question I had, which I know is an unanswerable question. Which your book just. I ask oh, yeah. you one first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because it has to do with this idea of murder mind, which I got yeah. really, really involved in when I was reading yeah. your book. And I, I write at some length about what it's like to. Um, imagine your mind into the mind of another, mm-hmm. which is actually something I do every day, hour by hour. Um, but in a courtroom, I was left to do it with multiple people at multiple times. And part of what I was left to do was to put myself in the mind of a murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I kind of found um, that I went at it um, from the murdered to the murderer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered what, what position you found yourself. I don't think it was that discreet. Yeah. Um, but I did have moments. Um, I was swimming at one point of time, and I was mm-hmm. pushing my head against a tile wall mm-hmm. when I was taking a break. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was in my fourth mm-hmm. lap that I realized I had been trying to imagine what it was like to be shot mm-hmm. in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. And you write about similar things, but I, I, you, you don't write so much about the mind of the murderer, and I actually think you you have a healthy respect for <laughs> really, really certainly a, a healthy respect for what you could and could not uh, know, um, and and also yeah. a I think a healthy suspicion about the nature of justice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard because I I think that um, I mean in my book because it's a kind of feminist saga of like if you grow up and you're and you have a family member who's been murdered in this way a woman and she's been murdered because she was um not because it's not why she was murdered but under the circumstances of which she took a ride from a ride board at college in the late 60s when it wasn't entirely common for I mean she was only the fourth female law student at University of Michigan it wasn't entirely common for somebody to be out in the public sphere much less getting a ride home from a stranger right Um, so if you have all that though and then you're growing up as I did under the shadow of kind of um, 
uh, of you know the kind of chronic menace of what might happen to a young uh, female body. Um, that is very easy to imagine, <laughs> like you know the, the the menace and the harm and. Although I too had, I mean, it's very hard. When you were talking, I got like a chill because I was like remembering, and I'm really grateful not to be there now. So I don't know if any of you have been there, but it's very hard to put myself back into in a way. But this murder mind place is not a place I normally live. When I was working on this project, I too, I had a lot of ideations about, I mean, the whole project about my aunt started because I had a series of dreams about being shot in the head. And I'd forgotten that's how my aunt died. And I was telling them to a friend, I was saying, I keep dreaming that there's like light coming out of my head, the front and the back. And she was like, isn't that how your aunt died? She was, you know, shot in the front and then in the back of the head, and I was kind of like, oh, like I can't even believe that my unconscious just told me that, and then it became something I felt like I had to deal with. But I think that because so starting from there, and then uh, I mean, I think that I moved in my book through a lot of like I had a lot of dreams about doing about murdering him <laughs> about like rage you know kind of like whatever rape revenge fantasies like uh, that kind of rage but it, his just random murdering of a woman you picked up I don't know like it, it was it isn't any place I could go I felt, actually felt like in your book it was I mean Brandon's life is so um miserable and as the jacket copy says you know he was kind of the, the transmission about guns and the transmission about how you solve a problem uh, through violence um, and, the, and the fact that, I can't remember what it is, what his his mother shot, his father... His father shot his, his, father his shot mother, his mother to Brandon's birth, yeah. Right, yeah, um, and then there was a... I mean, the, the, there was a certain kind of... Um, I mean, I hesitate to say, but you know, you can even see it in like the Donald Trump rally phenomenon. I mean, you can see this kind definitely, of like, I mean, definitely. you can feel the forces gathering, yes, and you can yes. feel this, you can feel the scariness and like the kind of sickness <laughs> yeah, yeah, of it. And I could feel that in your book in a way that I I've, have had a harder time conjuring with just kind of ad hoc misogynistic violence. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think what we see in the Trump rallies, I don't know if you guys have followed the story today, but there was a rally in Chicago that they had to they had yeah. to cancel. Um, but what we see is that bullying becomes a mode of discourse, if we can call it that. I mean, that's yeah. elevated beyond that which what it, what it is. But that was the kind of life that Brandon um, did grow up in, yeah. um, where there was a lot of bullying, there was a lot of hate that circulated, um, a lot of hateful speech, yeah. um, and a lot of guns. There were 15 guns um, in the house when they went to search um, that mm-hmm. afternoon. Um, yeah. But one of the most remarkable things about your book and is the way that I mean, and you know this from your practice and from research and other things, but you say this over and over again, that this whole, like, boys will be boys or abused boys will, will exhibit this behavior is not borne out statistically and that it's actually incredibly rare, incredibly rare for what Brandon to actually, you know, for someone to actually go in and actually take a life, you know, um, not to mention a 14-year-old boy. And I think, I mean... And I think that I mean in the in the book there's I mean one of my favorite parts and one of the most you know I think difficult parts of the book is which is the whole kind of hate crime discussion, which we can get into maybe but you know is where there are all these pictures of, of Brandon's that are being discussed on the stand and um, you know you guys can look at these drawings but what was so interesting you know about them in part is that you know I mean I I have to. Um, 
young boys in my house that I'm raising, and I don't—they don't draw swastikas. But they, but the, but this, but this thing that you describe between, like, I mean, you know, like, I mean, the analysis of like young boys' drawings, and I mean, to me, because you know, you could replace. I mean, you know, there are just so many things going on in those that they just don't... I mean, I think what's so interesting is the way that you, you, you show the conflagration of, of factors that are causing these drawings, while at the same time showing, like, these drawings, are, you know, or this these feelings do not, in many, many, many cases, lead on a, you know, step-by-step basis to this action. And that, to me, was very um, reassuring about the, po- about the population, but also, you know, left a lot of questions. So. Well, I think... Uh... The, the boys will be boys psychology um, is bankrupt mm-hmm. frankly um, mm-hmm. it's a very it's a very um, it's a bankrupt psychology um, so if we um, Brandon tried to recruit um, other people to join him in attacking Larry other boys they all declined mm-hmm. um, they all came to the witness stand um, and each in their own ways um, were um, quite um, adamant um, that Larry had never done anything that would warrant um, even um, uh, beating him up. Um, mm-hmm. So that they were actually quite horrified um, at Brandon's actions. But the defense, in a very cunning twist of logic, um, turned the tables such that Brandon was the bullied and Letitia was the bully. And the consequence or the motive for the murder was that Brandon had been driven in the heat of passion to kill Letitia because he had felt sufficiently harassed by her, Mm -hmm. even though not one child came to the witness stand and could recount a moment of harassment, nor could a teacher. Um, And and so, but it leaned very heavily on this idea of boys being boys. It also leaned very heavily on the idea that a gender transformation um, is a sexual it is a sexual embodiment mm-hmm. and, and Larry was 15 and he, she, Letitia was a sexually curious girl mm-hmm. but there was no place in this school for either gender or sex or sexuality to be uh, an opportunity for education mm-hmm. um, it was actually to be stopped mm-hmm. um, and ultimately Letitia was stopped and then again, I found myself kept going. I, I, maybe that was the way I protected myself, yeah. but it did feel to me like a real system problem, a very serious one, both yeah. educationally and psychologically. Yeah. Psychologically. I mean, the problem is, is that like all system problems, it's a system problem, but you see it in your book play out with individual people. So, <laughs> the sole teacher who instructs the students to stop yeah. bu- bullying, you know, Letitia is a lesbian who then is pilloried for, you know, promoting the gay agenda. Again, I mean, with the slippage between gay, you know, between sexuality and gender here, I'm just, I'm just rehearsing the the total confusion (laughs) throughout um, the school. And then you also have, like, as you said, you know, the complete reversal where you even have psychologists, I think it's Hoagland, I can't remember, you know, being willing to testify to say that, like, um, you know, asking if it even happened, asking Brandon to be Letitia's Valentine would be equivalent to 
you know, sexual, be, to, to, to sexual harassment or beating him up for, you know, X number of days to elicit this response. Right. You know. and, and, you know, <clears throat> that, that is the, the narrative, the motive, uh, the, narr- the motive narrative or the narrative motive yes. uh, that developed very quickly after the murder. Um, but there wasn't one person um, who could come to the witness stand and actually um, tell us that they had heard Larry ask Brandon to be his Valentine? It was all hearsay, um, and, and, and that story still lives, even though there's, right. there was no evidence presented. And then I was going to say also, I forgot that the about individual people. That then what you're saying about the boys being boys of being entirely bankrupt, and yet um, the. The movement, the free Brandon, you know, we support Brandon, wear your bracelet for Brandon movement, you know, you know, to me what was most, was very chilling and a good reminder about that was that, you know, it seemed like it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed very spearheaded by women and women on the jury to kind of protect um, this boy's behavior, which was a real, um, you know, deep reminder of the ways in which uh, uh, both genders can be exceedingly complicit and enforcing nefarious conditions, you know. Um, I, I went to the trial with Gail Solomon, you who's know, a professor at Princeton. She's working on a book on uh, the rhetoric of the law and the body. Um, and I remember turning to Gail, who always sat to my left one day after we'd been there for a couple of weeks, and I remember saying to her, do you think anybody in this room has even read Betty for Dan? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, just basic yeah. sort of, you know, uh, not, not, we're not talking sort of sophisticated or particularly, mm-hmm. you know, know, um, theory-driven feminism, mm-hmm. but um, I, it had not found its way into that room. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I know that we're supposed to have you guys to yeah. ask questions, yeah. too, but I just, I, but you said something about, you know, the, about, in my book, with this, um, you know, ambivalence about justice, and I guess I just wanted to say that another thing I really respect and about your book is that and this, I was thinking about this because it's so important with, you know, whether it's like Black Lives Matter or about police brutality or other things, but, you know, the, the difficulty of the fact that, like, even in Black Lives Matter or something, and in your book as well, like, you know, as we are witness to terrible injustice and as we want, as, as it's, as it's, as you're feeling palpably and palpably that somebody must be brought to you know accountability and somebody must be punished, but the discourse about hate crimes, of course, and the discourse about is that you know what you're asking for is longer prison terms, and you're and you and you're also up against the fact, and even you know and even anti-racist you know movements know this, and that that prison doesn't help, right? So you want so badly for this reckoning, and you want. Um, you know, justice to be served, and yet, um, you know, as we're moving in your book closer and closer, and you're just like, you know, God damn it, they cannot let this person off with the boys will be boys thing for his actions, and then you're also up against, wow, am I going to feel really great if he gets 80 years as a juvenile? You know, I mean, what the hell? You know, I don't know if you want to speak to that at all, but it's... <coughs> I, 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 I was quite clear, I am quite clear, that trying him as an adult um, is psychologically bankrupt and, and an ethical lapse. Um, and so um, I think what I had to do during the trial was um, in some way absent myself from questions of sentencing. Yeah. I think it's why the sentencing was so hard for me. Yeah. Um, and um, because knowing that there is no rehabilitation 
and there is no juvenile justice system in place such that a 14-year-old with this pattern of behavior and, and engaging in what in the law is called the worst thing you can do um, that there is there is no way within the prison system to help him. There is no rehabilitation, um, and so if he had been tried as a juvenile, he would have been um, released at 21. And one of the things that was most convincing to me, or I don't even know if convincing is the right word, but sobering, um, was when the district attorney said to me, "Well, would you want him living next door to you?" Um, and I had to say that no, I would not. Um, and so, um, how do we grapple with the fact that here we have a young person um, who has, I think, a serious mental illness um, of a of, uh, an illness of character, not an illness of um, of a psychotic nature or a mood disorder? But if he were an adult, we would re- we would be speaking of him as a sociopath. And then what do we do mm-hmm. with a young person who we understand to be this way? And that we don't have, uh, the system has no place for such a person. Um, and so I think what I had to do during the trial was act as if I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, just to keep going. And I got very focused on just wanting the crime named. Mm-hmm. I just wanted the crime named. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, you know, for those of you who haven't read Kent's book, you know, it has to do with, I think, it has to do with that, you know, that the hate crime. Uh, discussion in and around Brandon's actions were all being tied to like white supremacy and these different things, but actually race and you know transphobia and these things were entirely exiled from the courtroom. It could only be like the, like being you know homophobic in a way that could be tied to a white supremacist organization. So far as I understood it, so which just took up took all the kind of main things that were going on out of the room, um, which was kind of defies intersectional reason, you know. Yeah. Do you think we should let I think yeah, we okay, should, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. I forget what prompted you to do to do this. A lot of time out of your life and a big commitment. Yeah, like I said, I think it was an act of hubris. (laughs) Really seriously, I'm not on one level. Um, On another level, I read about Larry's memorial um, right at the time that I was finishing my last book. Um, And I got really curious about this story about two boys, one of whom was right from the beginning being spoken of as a normal boy, and the other was up to, you know, to use Judith Butler's phrase, some gender trouble. (laughs) And I was really interested in the ways in which this story was going to be told. Um, And thanks to my uh, Oxenard mole, Chris Clarkin, who's right here in the front row, um, I started to follow the trial through the Ventura County Star. Um, and um, Chris went to many of the pretrial hearings and would report back to me. Um, and slowly, I started to collect uh, information, and slowly it built into a book project. Did you have it? Did you know that you were going to do it as a book when you went out there? Was that the, yeah, that, that, was, that, that, was that I did yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. 
I know a lot of uh, victims' parents, like uh, Matthew Shepard or Tyler Clemente's uh, parents, go on to do advocacy in their names. Uh, am I correct that in Larry and Letitia's situation, that was not really, it doesn't seem like it's going to be the case, and if so, do you think that your project is, uh, is, is something like that, or is there anyone else out there who is advocating on behalf of this person who's lost? I think that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> um, in New York, when I did one of these events, Tony Kushner asked me about the artifacts that allowed me to um, imagine Letitia, because in many ways she was never brought to life in the courtroom. Um, and actually the artifacts that allowed me to bring her to life were artifacts that were given to me, either through description or through photographs or through recordings that Dawn and Greg King gave to me. Now Dawn and Greg King, Larry's adoptive parents, um, who he had moved out of their home two months prior to his death, um, having alleged abuse that was never um, actually documented um, or confirmed by the Bureau of Child Welfare. Um, but the, I, I could bring Letitia to life through what Greg and Dawn gave to me. Um, and so even though they, uh, they don't see the story the way I tell the story, um, in many ways, they, they did give me the, the, the materials to work with. Um, and um, I, uh, I sent them a book a week ago. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I don't know what will happen um, in relation to that. But no, um, they, they haven't set up anything um, akin to what Tyler Clemente's parents have done or Matthew Shepard's parents. Although Greg King was talking about wanting to lobby um, the California legislature in order to um, have uh, uh, school shootings, when there was a school shooting, that um, the sentence for the shooter would be uh, increased by one year for every child in the classroom um, in accord with the trauma that those kids had suffered. But I don't know if he's ever really followed up on that. Um, this is something I actually have never thought of before, and despite our conversations about um, your process of uh, sitting and then listening to everything. But did you ever sense, or, or in the aftermath as you were interviewing people, the kids were like 14 when it happened, basically, around 17 testifying. Yeah. So they've come into another level of sort of sexual self-maturity. And I was wondering if there were ways in which gender sexual ambiguities amongst those other high schoolers were set into motion by this murder of a, a kid undergoing his own his her own confusions. In other words, did were there did you sense there were other maybe possibly queer kids <laughs> who were more traumatized or yes. more open mm -hmm. by um, uh, I think both. Um, there was a queer boy and a queer girl. Um, and um, some of you may know that Marta Cunningham made a documentary about the murder called Valentine Road. And she spends quite a bit of time with um, the girl whose name is also Mariah. Um, and um, there's a boy named Kino um, who speaks with her. Um, but they, they were not 
in the classroom, either of those kids. And the kids who I worked with and talked to um, were, I, I just stayed with who came into the court. Um, and so, um, I, I, but that, that is a really interesting question. But Mariah was actually, uh, not the Mariah I write about, uh, but the other Mariah um, was, uh, I think, in, in some ways, um, engendered, if you will, um, to come out as trans um, herself. Um, When Brandon is arrested and his parents come to the police station and they're just about to leave and Brandon asks if James, his brother, knows about it and his mother goes, oh God, you know, thank God, no. Um, he's, Brandon says, tell him no one will fall. And I might be totally base, but to me that seems like he's basically saying um, that he's going to take the rap for an execution that was planned with... <coughs> James and or this Mr. I don't know how to pronounce it. Riam, Riam. Um, I mean, and that didn't pop up anywhere else in your book. I'm just wondering if at the trial the prosecutor used that at all, because I certainly would have if I was... Right, right. No, you're not off right. Uh, you're not off. Um, what they did um, try to work with was the idea that um, Brandon um, undertook the murder in part, um, almost in the spirit of a gang initiation. Um, so an initiation within uh, the local white supremacist organization, which was tagged the, the SSL, or the Silver Strand Locals. The problem from a legal perspective was that the, the SSL had never been stepped up within legal process if, you're, if you get um, charged with a gang enhancement. Someone from that gang would have already had to have been arrested and convicted of a capital crime. And, and no one had been. Um, so legally, they didn't really have um, the grounds to work from um, with regard to that. Um, so, um, but, it, but it is a, a very um, curious statement. Um, and James, in an interview that I do with him um, after the trial, um, does suggest that he thought that Brandon was involved in a kind of vigilante fantasy. Um, and um, he talks about this movie called Boondock Saints, um, where I did, the, I, did the, I did the math at one point. I think there are four people killed every minute or something like that. But these two brothers, these two Irish brothers who go on a vigilante hunt um, killing uh, people in their community who have done bad things. Um, so it was James was operating with a theory that Brandon had killed Larry because Larry was a sexual predator. Again, I'm sorry about your laryngitis, <laughs> but I would like to ask you a legal question. Sure. You can answer yes or no. You don't have to. Right. <laughs> but do you recognize me? I, I don't know as I do. And I should, I guess, right? And you are. 
<laughs> I, I was one of the three males on the jury. Wow, you've changed quite a bit. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Yes, now that when you took off your hat, yes. Yeah, wow. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. But the, but the question that was just asked right there by this lady. Oh my gosh, it's so amazing that you're here. We were never allowed to hear or see that taped part right. of that interchange that happened in the juvenile police department with the father and with the policeman. We, we heard it happen, but we were never allowed to hear that statement that you just said. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's remarkable it that you're here. An emotional, significant experience. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, I'll never forget I'm sure. And I thank you for writing the book. I probably broke the law going to the local bookstore as fast as I could buy it. And I'm, I'm a little in wonder that there are more people here that were part of it. Uh, yeah, I, I heard from several of them. It was hard for them to get here from Ventura at this time of day. Uh, people that I disagree with that really got publicity on 2020. Yeah, definitely. Yes, and, yes. Um, and I made a decision because um, they took a public stand, and I explained this in the book, that this, this seven people who voted for voluntary manslaughter um, took a public stand to go public and to speak publicly, and the five people who voted for first-degree murder did not, that I was going to treat it then. What I, what I was going to do with the jury at that point was only work with that which was public. Um, but I would love to talk with you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it was a. Um, and I think that the, the jury was well protected uh, through the whole trial. I do too. Um, and I don't know whether you're aware of it, or maybe I shouldn't even say it, but one of the jury members, her own husband. Yes, yes, I, I am aware of that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Just always wondered what her thought about that was. Yes. The way she thought about. Yes. 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 Right. 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 Wow. It's remarkable that you're here. Really remarkable. Thank you again for writing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It was a really traumatic, very traumatic period of time. I spent a lot of time reading about trauma. I would go back to my hotel room and order books on Amazon about trauma and read them. Um, yeah, yeah. At least you got to talk to Alex a lot. Of oh, that was incredible, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's referring to a kid where I would go and swim on the weekends who was a brown boy who was Larry's age, um, who I uh, formed uh, this sort of... Uh, 
you know, friendship of a sort with, and he was like my everyday, he was my every man in the mm-hmm. book, um, and very valuable uh, in that way. Uh, are you familiar with Game of Thieves, One Man Show, about the young gay Yes. Day? Yeah. Is there any, is that just a coincidence that there was kind of a thematic similarity, or did, that, did his play happen before your, the Oxnard incident, or afterwards, or are they just two independent? Um, um, he's talking about a play called The Absolute Brightness of Leonard Pelkey Um, it actually happened after um, and James um, who's a friend of mine actually knew quite a bit about what um, I was working on Um, and um, and started to work with ideas about a hate crime after I had um, talked with him about it yeah yeah there was a question. Um, I was just thinking about, in terms of trauma, um, the kids who you had interviewed, was it some of their first time speaking with a therapist? What was mm-hmm. that like? I was curious what that was like for you, and did that result in for them any ongoing treatment with other people? Right. Um, that, that was not only true for them, that was true for most everyone. Um, and so... Um, uh, Kendra McInerney Brandon's mother um, referred to me as Dr. Ken um, and um, I, I don't write about this in the book I, I, I wrote quite a bit about it and I ended up taking it out because it got a little too abstract I, I, it was really important for me to write this book as a story um, I wanted it to be a, a story, uh, first and foremost, a story. Um, I, I'm an academic. I come from a very academic background and have written mostly very academic things. Um, but my target reader for this book was a mother who read The New Yorker. Um, so um, uh, the ideas that I've been educated with and I live in should sort of seep through the story, but they're never on the surface or very rarely. But I did at one point try to write about the fact that um, I am a psychologist after all. I am often in a position of listening. Um, And um, what what was my ethical responsibility um, in this position? And I would introduce myself to people as a psychologist and I discussed it with them. Um, And um, whether or not they were um, able to to have a thoughtful response or, you know, uh, to, to reflect on what it is that was happening between us. Um, every person said to me, that's okay, I'm so relieved to actually have someone to talk to um, and that I want you to have this information, um, including Brendan's mother, where, you know, at the end of the book, there's a kind of almost... Um, Ford Maddox Ford moment where you you begin to see the ways in which various things that the defense was up to um, were really quite um, unethical. Um, so, um, is uh, it hard as a psychologist? I mean, psychology doesn't come off exceedingly well in the trial, mm. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, um, uh, yeah. I don't 
I know. I kept thinking, like, okay, so there's the good Dr. Uh, Ken over here, and then yeah, there's the parade of, you yeah, know, uh, yeah. you know, whatever, monstrous, homophobic, you know, I mean, yeah. all that stuff about disassociation and, like, you know, how you, you know, the kind of, like, cliche of making up these various DSM things that basically just could it be associated with anybody who does anything, that, like, anybody who... <laughs> fires a gun and kills someone in front of them, it's probably not going to remember the ten, five seconds yeah. afterwards, yeah. but the idea that if you didn't, then that meant you were, you know, all that, I don't know, how did you feel sitting in there with uh, all that? <laughs> that was the hardest chapter for me to write. Oh, man, I, I had to work on it for a very long time, and my editor kept sending it back to me with various things crossed out. Yeah. Um, and... Um, uh, the psych- I, I actually thought the psychologist could have made a case for the role that dissociation undoubtedly played in Brandon's life mm-hmm. over a cumulative period of time. Right. Any human who grows up in a context of the kind of violence that he grew up in, their mind it becomes cratered um, through uh, that, that kind of violence. Mm-hmm. And undoubtedly, his was a mind made through violence and through quite open um, expressions of hate um, and um, I, I actually thought that the defense psychologist could have made his case better but um, yeah apparently he didn't need to there were there were quite a few members of the jury um, who um, uh, accepted his claim of dissociation or that the murder happened um, in a state of dissociation even though Brandon himself um, uh, what's the word I want? Um, he, he doesn't confirm that. He discounts it or discredits it because the classroom teacher screamed in between the first and second shot and he has a recollection of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, what you know, I don't, I don't think there really are spoiler alerts in this book. You can easily find out what happened. Just Google it. Um, you read the book in a different spirit. Um, but um, it, one is left to wonder what Brandon actually said and what was put into his words um, by the psychologist in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sat there very suspicious throughout much of the trial, thinking that the, he sounded too adult and he sounded too articulate for a kid who was known to not talk and not have friends. Mm-hmm. Can we one more question? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get one more. Let me make an observation. (laughs) I anticipated a book that would be clinically precise and a narrative, if you will. I found a book that was all of that, but it was poetry. And you injected so much humanity, so much sensitivity, so much exceptional prose that I've in awe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> this is my father-in-law. <laughs> nothing to do with it. <laughs> I think we have to have a disclaimer. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I really wanted to do. I, I, you know, I worked on this for four years. I, I feel like psychology has left the public square. Psychologists don't speak anymore, other than through self-help books. Um, and so, I really wanted to find a way for a psychologist to speak. 
um, and to have a place and not be just Dr. Toad from Toad Hall, which is who we, who we called Oakland. Um, um, there were lots of nicknames that circulated. I'd be very curious to know what the ones from the jury were. <laughs> um, but it, it was part of the courtroom culture, right, that there were lots of nicknames. Uh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.